This is the Adventist World Radio, and you are listening to the Voice of Hope. For more information, please feel free to write to us. Our email address is Bible at awr dot org, or you could also call us on WhatsApp at plus one two two four two 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 zero seven seven seven. Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio, researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson, and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 751 for release on Sunday, July 16th, 2023. On WaveScan today. We return to the radio broadcasting scene in the mountain country of Bhutan in Asia. We'll also have book and radio reviews, and more on WaveScan today. The first radio broadcasting station in Bhutan was Radio NYAB, a shortwave service that was in- initiated by the National Youth Association of Bhutan. In the small national capital city Timpu, the inauguration date was Sunday, November 11, 1973, exactly half a century ago, towards the end of this year. The inaugural broadcast began at 3 p.m., though an unofficial new standard time was announced as 3:30 p.m., which, through continued usage, became official. Here's Ray Robinson now with more on radio broadcasting in Bhutan. Thanks, Jeff. Curiously, on October the first, nineteen seventy-nine, Bhutan declared a new official time as UTC plus six hours and four minutes. But these days, it is exactly UTC plus six hours. The original broadcast equipment was a three hundred watt Morse code transmitter, model BC six ten, an American-made unit left over from World War Two that had been manufactured by several radio companies as a joint project. Due to local electrical fluctuations, the transmitter operated with an output of around 100 watts in the 40-meter amateur band on 7040 kilohertz. Radio NYAB presented somewhat informal programming in four languages: Bhutani, Nepali, Hindi, and English, with local and American music, news read from Indian newspapers, and local information. The postal address for Radio NYAB was given as Box One Timpu, which was literally a box on the floor in the post office. Initially, listener reception reports were confirmed by letter, though a specially designed QSL card became available in 1980. Subsequently, the Royal Palace requested Box Number One, so the radio station, by then using the name Bhutan Broadcasting Service or BBS, took Box 101 instead. The first official visit to Radio NYAB from foreign radio personnel occurred in 1983, when a senior staff member from Adventist World Radio in Pune, India, made a special journey up into Timpu, Bhutan. At the time, the eight-year-old Radio NYAB was still housed in its original location. 
Two years later, in 1985, two well-known international radio monitors from India, P. Banerjee and Sudipta Ghosi, made a visit to Radio NYAB. And 12 years later again, in 1997, Jawahar Almeida from Goa also visited the station. At the time of that 1997 visit, the studios of Radio NYAB or BBS were already in their new Timpu building and the two 5kW and 100kW shortwave transmitters were already installed on top of the nearby Sangyigang Hill. The program feed from the studios to the transmitters was by underground cable, and also a 20W FM transmitter on 96MHz. Back in 1975, a couple of years after Radio NYAB was inaugurated, a public announcement indicated that two 50kW shortwave transmitters were planned for installation – one in Timpu and the other at Puncholing. Fifteen years later, a 50 kilowatt transmitter was installed at Timpu, though the Puncholing station near the southeastern border with India never materialised. During the past half century, Radio NYAB and BBS, the Bhutan Broadcasting Service, have broadcast their programming over a total of four different shortwave transmitters. The first transmitter was the modified leftover unit from World War II, the 300 watt BC610, running at around 100 watts. It was used for national radio communication in Morse code and for part time program broadcasting as Radio NYAB. The original location for studio, offices, and transmitter was in an already existing two story building just off Norzin Lam, up upon a rise overlooking Timpu. That transmitter was in regular and sometimes part-time fill-in emergency usage for nearly 30 years. Secondly, a new transmitter building was constructed on top of Sangyigang Hill on the west side of Mid-Timpu in 1985, and a 10kW Harris Gates transmitter was installed. That transmitter was always operated at half power, 5 kilowatts, and it was taken into full service in 1986, though it was used as a backup when two higher-powered transmitters were later installed. Thirdly, an aid gift from India provided the purchase of a 50 kilowatt shortwave transmitter from Brown Bovary in France and Switzerland. That unit was also installed at the Sangyigang station, and it was taken into service in 1989. And then the station's fourth shortwave transmitter, a 100kW Thomson model TSW2100D, was taken into service at the same Sangyigang location in 2007. The Indian ambassador participated in the inauguration service. However, due to transmitter malfunctions and the lack of staff capability, an experienced radio engineer from India came up to Bhutan to assist in repairs and maintenance three years later in 2010, and again in 2014. But with the nationwide spread of a growing FM network, the usage of shortwave was discontinued around three years ago in 2020. And thus, Bhutan never installed a medium-wave radio broadcasting station – It closed its four consecutive shortwave transmitters and it now operates the nationwide government and private network of 50 or more FM stations. The main studio buildings located at Chubachu in central Timpu. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you, Ray Robinson at The Voice of Hope in Los Angeles. You're listening to ABC Radio Australia. Yours in the Pacific. Well, 
Welcome to Island Music on ABC Radio Australia across the Pacific. This is Rick Howe with you, bringing you the finest in reggae, dancehall and Pacific music. ABC Radio Australia will be heard in the Republic of Palau in the Pacific for the first time in more than five years after a memorandum of understanding was signed with the Palau government recently. Programs will be carried on Palau's national radio broadcaster, Echo Paradise FM, at 87.9 MHz, and on EPFM Nguerel Balao AM radio, beginning on July 28th. Here on Wayscan, we frequently mention shortwave reference books and online publications. Earlier this year, we mentioned the World Radio TV Handbook, which has been a must-have reference book for shortwave and other radio listeners for 75 years now. But they've had some promotions lately, so we want to mention it again. Shortly after the 2023 edition came out, the well-known DXer Rob Wagner in Australia wrote a review of the book, which we want to read to you today on WaveScan. Rob wrote the following. My copy of the 2023 World Radio TV Handbook arrived in just five days from placing the online order. This copy appears to have been shipped from England via DHL and couriered locally by Australia Post. Not bad delivery time from England to Australia. For this preview, I'm purely looking at the book's physical characteristics and comparing it with the 2022 copy. And there are some differences to comment on here. Initial observations. The book has more pages than last year's handbook. The binding looks the same, so even with the page increase, I think the book should stay together, that is, not fall apart, except maybe under extreme or rigorous use. The font type and size used in the national and international radio sections is different. It seems clearer and slightly easier to read. Strangely, the clandestine broadcasts section has a different, even bigger font size. Very clear and easy to read. I have no idea why they decided to do that, but I'm not complaining. The font type and size in the articles section at the front of the book is different again. Characters are small and thin. I'm finding it difficult to read the text easily, especially as it's printed on glossy paper. This is something the publisher should reformat for the next edition. Although, if you're anything like me, once I've read the articles once, I rarely revisit that front section of the book again. Although I haven't read them yet, the articles all look interesting. The receiver reviews have a similar format to past editions, and the HF receiver guide chart remains. The maps section appears to have had a little refresh. The colors are a little stronger, although I preferred the map colors of the previous edition. But interestingly, they have identified more transmitter sites on each map, which is a good thing. The back end of the book has the usual sections. However, it's noticeable that there are fewer advertisers this time around. This may well be because until last September, we all assumed that the World Radio TV Handbook was finished. Now that it has been rescued from oblivion by the new publishers, advertisers may well return to the handbook pages. It's great to see that most of the regular contributors of the book remain, and a significant number of new contributors have joined them. This is a good thing. As a way of recognizing their contributions, there's an extra page titled Hall of Fame. A nice touch. So, summary. On the surface, the 2023 WRTH looks very good. 
Importantly, all that wonderful work undertaken by previous owners and publishers over many decades has been largely preserved for us radio listeners and DXers to enjoy. For this, we should be grateful, and the 2023 publication deserves our support. The new owners should be applauded for their initiative to pick up this enormous project and run with it. Indeed, this is no small undertaking. In my opinion, the first edition under the new publisher is a resounding success. 73s and good DX to you all. Rob Wagner, VK3BVW, Australia. Thank you, Rob. And you can order the 2023 World Radio TV Handbook online at WRTH.com or at Amazon.com or in the United States at Universal-Radio.com. The price is about $40. And as long as we're doing reviews today, I got an email from the Sea Crane Company in California regarding their fairly new Sea Crane Skywave SSB version 2. Thomas Witherspoon did a review of this radio in SWLing.com, and I want to read part of that to you because I have one of the Sea Crane Skywave SSB original version radios, and I always use it when I'm traveling because of its small size and excellent quality. But let me read you what Thomas wrote about a pre-production model of the Skywave SSB-2. He said, If you've read the SWLing post for long, you'll know that the CC Skywave SSB is my choice travel and everyday carry radio. I prefer it over any other portable I own, and I do have quite a lot, because it's so insanely useful, efficient, lightweight, compact, and durable. I've taken the CC Skywave SSB and the original CC Skywave on more travels than I could possibly remember. So what's so great about the Skywave series? When I fly, I take only one carry-on bag. It's so compact it can fit under the seat in front of me in any type of commercial aircraft. I firmly believe there is no freedom like one-bag travel. While others are stressing over where to stow luggage, how to carry it all, or why their checked-in luggage didn't arrive at the destination, I'm cruising through the airport and to my destination unhindered. The key to successful one-bag travel is only carrying what you need and focusing on items that are multifunction. Me? I need a good multiband radio. The CC Skywave SSB is the most comprehensive compact portable I own. It's truly a Swiss army knife of a receiver. Here are the bands and features that I appreciate. AM, or medium wave, has 9 and 10 kHz steps selectable. FM broadcast, with an expanded FM range when in the 9 kHz step mode. Shortwave coverage. Airband, to listen to air traffic control and air communications. Weather radio with alert. This functions brilliantly in the U.S. and Canada. A proper clock and alarm that can display in 24-hour time. It uses two common AA batteries that can even be internally recharged if they're NIMH batteries. It even has a squelch feature for scanning, say, the airband. All of this, and it's also one of the best-performing compact radios on the market. It's a capable radio for portable DXing right out of the box. So what's in version 2? C-Crane is all about small improvements to their product line based on customer feedback. Instead of coming out with a new radio design every two years, C-Crane focuses on incremental upgrades to their existing models. 
the CC Skywave SSB2 has a few upgrades. Shortwave external antenna jack can significantly improve shortwave reception when used with an external antenna. The SSB2 now even ships with an adapter for long wires. The new micro USB port, the old one was mini USB, includes improved in-circuit battery charging for AA and IMH cells. A higher quality speaker along with slightly more audio amplification and longer feet on the bottom of the radio for better stability. So that's an abridged version of Thomas Witherspoon's review of the C-Crane Skywave SSB2 receiver. And you can find the full review on the website swling.com. The price of the radio is about $170 US, and it can be ordered from the C-Crane website, which is ccrane.com. That's C-C-R-A-N-E. C-Crane delivers to some locations outside the United States, but C-Crane radios can also be ordered internationally from Amazon.com. Looking at Amazon's U.S. website a few days ago, I saw they had the C-Crane Skywave available, but not the SSB version. The C-Crane Skywave regular version is about the same as the SSB version, but without single sideband reception capability and it's only $90 on Amazon.com. So if you don't care about SSB reception, the regular C-Crane Skywave radio may be just fine for you. Today we're going to present another segment of Jonathan Marks's Media Network Vintage Vault. Jonathan was the host of Media Network on the now-defunct Radio Netherlands, one of the world's major shortwave broadcasters for many decades. Jonathan says... COVID disrupted just about everything for me, and by New Year's Day 2023, I started wondering if there's any value in continuing the Media Network archive I built about international sound broadcasting in the 20th century. What has always kept me going is unearthing the stories of the past and bumping into amazing people like Dr. Graham Mitten, who I knew in the 1980s as head of BBC International Audience Research. A year ago, I had the chance to have a Zoom call with him. Only now have I found a moment to start montaging it. But you be the judge. Is this oral history still relevant in 2023? Here's Jonathan. It's now over 10 years since BBC World Service left Bush House on the Strand in London. And as they were leaving, I remember iconic posters that were in the windows were gradually removed. One always sticks in my mind because it was the philosophy I used at my work at Radio Netherlands. Audiences are at the heart of everything we do. That also reminds me of fantastic conversations with Dr. Graham Mitten, whom I knew as Head of Audience Research at BBC External Services. A specialist on Africa, I still have many questions about how the BBC's International Service researched its radio audience at the end of the last century. So when I discovered Graham had a Zoom account, I grabbed the opportunity to link up. Graeme, first of all, it's great to see you after all these years. Hmm. It's good to see you, Jonathan, as well. We've known each other now, I reckon, about 45 to 50 years, something like that. Which is quite quite a long time. It's more than half your life and more than half mine. Indeed. So let me start, first of all, by asking for a bit of an introduction. I'm curious about how you became so fascinated by international audiences 
and how you gradually found your way to the BBC's external radio services. Well, that, that's two questions and that's two answers. I got into the BBC because when I was at university in Liverpool, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was very much involved in drama and with music, singing, jazz. Uh, I organised a lot of stuff. I loved making things. I loved being creative. And so I thought, well, why don't I try and get in the BBC? There were two ways of getting into the BBC, either as a producer straight off or as a studio manager. And the studio manager entry was somewhat easier. I, uh, and I got, a, I got a place on a studio management course in 1964, and I did that. And I was a studio manager for two years, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I did all sorts of things from pop music to sport. I was a studio manager attached to uh, the Brazilian radio station, Radio Tupi from Sao Paulo. And I spent the whole of the World Cup until Brazil was knocked out. Uh, with that uh, radio team, so uh, I a, and I did stuff with classical music, with drama, with with pop music, with all the range of things, and particularly current affairs, and I loved that. And I wanted to be a current affairs producer, but I was told, "Oh, you've only been a studio manager two years; you can't possibly become a producer. You're not mature enough yet." So I was very fed up with that, and for various reasons, including um, a, a breakup of an engagement and related emotional problems, I decided to go back to the warm comfort of academia. And I got a place at Manchester to study for a PhD, which I did. I went to Manchester, uh, left the BBC, and uh, in Manchester, I had a wonderful supervisor, Ken Post, who will be familiar to many Dutch people because he became a professor at one of the uh, universities in, in, um, in, in the Netherlands. He's now sadly dead, but he was an inspiration to me. He was a West African specialist. And he said to me one day, he said, Graham, you are interested in radio. You've been involved in radio. Uh, you work there. You're also are interested in Africa. And I was. I'd been interested in Africa from when I was at school. Nyerere was a hero of mine. The chap who came president of Tanzania. I had some of his books. And they said, the two things go together. Do you, you realize... This was the thing he knew, something I hadn't even thought about. He said, you know, African independence has come at the same time as the results of the discovery of the, of the transistor. And the transistor radio is now a mass medium, and it's made radio available all over Africa. You need to go and look at those things. What, what is the connection between the transistor radio and political growth and political changes in Africa. There is a link. Go and go and research that. It was an inspiring, an amazingly inspiring idea. I'd never thought of it. And that was the topic of my thesis. I chose Tanzania, went to Tanzania for a year at the University of Dar es Salaam and did a survey of, uh, of, of uh, mass media use in Tanzania. And of course, radio was number one, way out in front of everything else. And it had only just happened. Uh, in the in the previous decade or so, that radio had suddenly gone from being something that almost nobody had, because in before the transistor you had to have valves, thermionic valves. Thermionic valves needed mains electricity. The transistor meant you could have a radio run on just torch batteries, and so massive amounts of radio were produced in the Netherlands, in in Japan, and some some of them were even assembled in Africa. Philips had a factory. Oh. Let's build it up, but but uh, we need to establish when this is. You're talking about 1967. Sorry, I went to I went to Manchester in 1966. The challenge came from Ken Post to me in 1966. 
I went to Tanzania in 67. I remained there for a year and did a survey. And of course, I discovered the overwhelming importance of radio. And it has only just happened in the previous five or six years or so. It looks to me that the, the European colonialists introduced radio to the African continent mainly as a, a means of communicating with their own kind rather than um, communicating with the locals. Is that true? Uh, it's true and it's also not true, like so many things uh, about Africa. It is true that radio was introduced in some parts of Africa as a way of communicating with the colonialists. In Kenya, uh, that was the case. In, in uh, Rhodesia, it was partly the case. I'll come back to Rhodesia in a minute. But not in, in Gold Coast. In Gold Coast, uh, the, a rediffusion system was established in the 1930s not wireless, just for people to understand in those days, it was a wired radio system, which went into people's houses, in, but only, of course, in the, in the towns where, where, where that could happen. Uh, now, there is a unique uh, experiment done in northern Rhodesia, now Zambia. A remarkably clever fellow called Harry Franklin had managed to get the EverReady battery company to, uh, and uh, working with others, uh, to make something called the saucepan special. This was a radio set which had a thermionic valve and it could actually run on a battery. It was a 100-volt battery called EverReady Winner Battery. The battery cost almost as much as the radio. It cost about a pound for the battery and the radio cost about four or five pounds. So you could buy a portable radio with a thermionic valve. And Harry Franklin started this broadcasting service entirely for Africans. It wasn't for the white settlers. It wasn't for the Asian community. It was for Africans. It was entirely in African languages to start with. In, in they chose Bemba, Nyanja, Lozi, and Tonga. And then they added a few other languages later on. And so that was the, known as the central, and also, by the way, the languages of uh, southern Rhodesia, which were mainly Shona and Nabele. And, the, and the, the Central African Broadcasting Station started in 1941. It was the first one anywhere in the British Empire in Africa entirely devoted to broadcasting to Africans. That was Dr. Graham Mitten, former head of audience research at the BBC World Service, speaking with Jonathan Marks on his media network Vintage Vault, available on the Internet. We'll continue with his interview with Graham Mitten on an upcoming edition of WaveScan. And we end today's edition of WaveScan with music from Bhutan, from the Bhutan Broadcasting Service. Thanks for listening to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson. Tune in next week for a very special edition of WaveScan, a special report by Ray Robinson on the Voice of Peace anniversary. WaveScan is heard weekly on KSDA in Guam, AWR relays in various locations, WRMI in Florida, WWCR in Tennessee, Voice of Hope Africa in Zambia, and IRRS Italy. Send reception reports directly to the station you're listening to. Reports for KSDA and AWR sites should go to qsl at awr.org. Other correspondence, not reception reports, can be sent to wavescan 
at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. Till next week, good listening, everyone. Adventist World Radio, and you are listening to the Voice of Hope. For more information, please feel free to write to us. Our email address is bible at awr dot org, or you could also call us on WhatsApp at plus one two two four two 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 zero seven seven seven. 